All right, thank you, Ted. It's a real joy to be able to open up God's Word with you this morning, although I must say that a huge reason I love coming to Lighthouse is usually to be able to see all of you, and uh, I just have some really sweet memories here, and I love catching up with old friends and making some new ones, but uh, today, I guess hanging out with Peter and Ted will have to do. Uh, But as I said, God has really blessed my time in uh, just playing a small part in the ministry here at Lighthouse. I remember being at uh, the Young Adult Retreat a couple of years ago and uh, just staying up late, having long conversations about theology and ministry with a bunch of you, and uh, it was just such a great conversation, really fun getting to know all of you. And then I remember going to the college retreat and meeting some wild and crazy kids from San Jose State. And uh, we too had great conversations there. To this day, one thing that really sticks out to me about that retreat was the Untalent Show. I am still processing what exactly I witnessed that day with the Untalent Show. Uh, But I also just really loved getting to know uh, all of you college students, and it was a huge encouragement to me to see so many college students being passionate about Jesus Christ and being passionate about spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ on their campus. And so for for this reason and the fact that I love Pastor Mark and uh, just highly admire his ministry and his faithfulness, uh, I'm super thrilled to be able to open up God's word with you. And uh, excited to uh, just be another small part uh, of the ministry here. I want to begin by telling you about Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. You may remember from your history class, the Lewis and Clark Expedition. Thomas Jefferson commissioned these two men to explore the territory of the newly acquired Louisiana Purchase. And so Lewis and Clark recruited 40 men and made this very first expedition to the western part of the United States. And their task, their goal, was to map out this uncharted territory and to see just how far west the United States actually went. Uh, The exploration went from... 1803 to 1805, and covered 3,700 miles. The men traveled by foot, by horseback, and through rivers with keel boats, which were boats powered by sails and oars. And this journey proved to be absolutely grueling. Uh, The most difficult part of this journey was going through the Rocky Mountains, The rocks were slippery from rain and melting snow. Steep and slippery mountain passes with loose rocks made the horses slip and the riders fell along with them. Uh, The team lost their way several times in this trek through the Rockies, but eventually they did make it through. Then they faced being out in the open in thunderstorms, hailstorms, and dust storms. When there was no river... The men had to carry their boats, making it possible to only cover about four miles per day. The worst winter they faced, it rained all but 12 days, and the men's clothes rotted off their backs. Another extremely difficult terrain to navigate through were the prickly pear cacti fields of Montana. Clark records in his journal how one night, sitting by the campfire, he pulled out 17 cactus needles from one of his feet. 
The group also faced hostility from Native Americans. Yes, Lewis and Clark had the famous Sacagawea, this uh, Native American woman who helped with easing the tensions between these two groups and with translation. But Lewis and Clark's uh, group and the Native Americans almost engaged in conflict several times. The team also saw more than 40 grizzly bears. And Lewis was nearly killed by one. Another time, a grizzly bear attacked. They shot that bear through his chest, but the bear was still able to chase one of the members of the team for half a mile before falling and dying. The team faced attacks from wolves, and several were bitten by rattlesnakes. This trip was absolutely agonizing. But then, in November of 1805, they saw something that made it all worth it. The Pacific Ocean. Uh, They had reached the coast of what is now Oregon. The trip was a success. But you see, Lewis and Clark would never have reached this destination if they hadn't traveled through all that rough terrain. Uh, They never would have saw the glimmer of the Pacific Ocean. They never would have been able to plant an American flag on the Pacific coast if they hadn't gone through all that difficulty. Today we're going to see a passage about a destination and a journey. And the destination is amazing. Uh, It's awesome. It is Christ-likeness, Christian maturity, strong, robust, thriving, flourishing faith. It's being done with apathetic, hypocritical, on and off again, Sunday-only kind of Christianity. It is, it is a strong, firmly planted faith in Jesus Christ. That's the destination. It is more precious than gold, Scripture tells us. But the journey to get there is difficult. The terrain is rough. And that's what we're going to see in James chapter 1. You can turn there at this time if you're not there already. James chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. And we're going to see this amazing and highly sought after destination. And we're going to see how we can prepare for this difficult and arduous journey that lay ahead of us. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. In verse 1, we see who James is writing to. The 12 tribes is a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel. These are Jewish people, but these are not Jewish people in Jerusalem. They are Jewish people in the, as James says, dispersion. They are dispersed. They are scattered like seed throughout the Roman Empire because it was no longer safe to stay in Jerusalem. Persecution was heating up, and this persecution scattered everyone abroad. 
In Acts 7, one of their leaders, Stephen, had given a sermon about how Jesus is the Messiah and how people everywhere were to repent from their sins and place their faith in this one true Messiah. And how did the people react to this sermon? Uh, Did they greet Stephen at the door and say, oh, Pastor Stephen, great sermon. Thank you so much for taking the time to put it together. Really looking forward to applying that sermon to our lives. No. They threw Stephen in a pit, picked up the largest rocks they could find, and threw it on his head. They stoned him. And this was the spark of a gigantic wave of persecution that scattered the people abroad. And so the people James is writing to are scared, confused, away from family and friends. And so as James opens this epistle to them, he meets them right where they are in the midst of a trial. And in addressing these trials, he says something strange, absurd even. Be happy. Hey, I know you guys are going through one of the most painful trials of your entire life, but Rejoice. How can James say this? It's so weird that James would say this, but it's only weird if you don't have the Christian perspective on trials. And that's what I hope that we're all going to gain today. Uh, Let's look at three crucial components of the Christian perspective on trials. I'm going to give them to you up front. Uh, The rejoicing in trials, verse 2. The reason for trials, verses 3 to 4. And the response to trials, verse 5. The rejoicing in trials, the reason for trials, and the response to trials. Uh, First, the rejoicing in trials. Let's read verse 2 again. Count it all joy, my brothers, When you meet trials of various kinds, count it all joy, not some joy, not half-hearted joy, not fake joy, not pasted on smile joy, but full, complete, and authentic joy. Joy is an emotion that includes Contentment, peace, and yes, actual happiness. I know I'm not allowed to change the Bible, but I could change the Bible. If God appeared to me and said, all right, Chris, let you change one thing. Now, again, I know this is not going to happen. This is just hypothetical. But if I could change one thing in the Bible... I would change James 1, 2. And I would only do to change one little word. I would switch out that word when for the word if. But it's not if. It's when. Count it all joy when you experience trials. It's inevitable. You're either coming out of a trial 
in a trial right now or about to go into a trial. All the while, you might be counseling someone else who is going through a trial. This is simply a part of living in the fallen world. So do you have a plan for when trials come? I remember being in elementary school and they really pound into you earthquake safety and fire safety. So what happens if an earthquake happens? Well, uh, you are supposed to duck under your desk or a sturdy table or something and cover up the back of your head and your neck. And what happens if you catch on fire? Stop, drop, and roll. We know this. Well, what if, what if seismologists on the news had better technology and they made an announcement that tomorrow at 5 o'clock, we know for sure there is going to be a magnitude 8 earthquake and the epicenter is going to be in San Jose. Well, then you better have a plan for what you're going to do there. Here we see that trials are not a maybe but they're a sure thing. They're going to happen. And so we better have a plan to prepare for when these trials come. And these trials come in a variety of forms. Uh, the end of verse 2 says you will meet trials of various kinds. Diverse trials. Multiple different kinds of trials. Uh, some that are life-threatening. And some that are stubbing your toe on a desk. Some that are big, some that are small, some that are long, some that are short, some that you're going to have to deal with on your own, and some are going to involve other people. Uh, some trials are financial. Some trials happen at work, some at school, some with your family, some with your extended family, some with your friends. There are trials of various kinds that you're going to meet. Now, it's interesting, very interesting times that we live in now because the entire world is going through the same trial. We're all having to deal with the effects of COVID-19. And so all of our schedules have been messed up. All of our workplaces have been affected. All of our schools have been affected. We've all had to cancel things. We, we're all uh, sheltered away from fellowship with family and friends. And so we're all going through the same trial, yet at the same time, it's different. Some of you have had drastic changes to your life because of this pandemic, and for others of you, it's more of a mild inconvenience. But whatever variety of trial you've had to endure, whatever variety of trials you've had to endure during this time, James says you can count it as joy. You can be content, peaceful, and happy during these trials. How in the world can he say that? Well, let's move on to the reason for trials. Our second point for today, as we try to gain the Christian perspective on trials, let's look at verses 3 to 4, the reason for trials. Verses 3 and 4. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When we suffer, we might question God, sometimes out loud. Why, God? Why me? Why this? Why now? And maybe surprisingly, God gives us the answer. It's in these two verses. 
Verse 3 starts off with the connecting word for. You can replace it with the word because. Rejoice in your trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Trials are inevitable in your life. But James says that's okay. In fact, it's more than okay because these trials will lead to the testing of your faith. And that is a good thing. That is a very good thing. You see, this word testing referred to an ancient goldsmith who would take a raw chunk of gold and subject it to intense heat to melt it into a liquid. And what would happen is that the impure minerals, the stuff that you didn't want in there, would rise to the top of that liquid, and the gold would sink to the bottom because the gold was heavier. Then the goldsmith would let it cool off for a while, and he would be able then to scrape off all those minerals that were unwanted and get it out of the gold. Then he would subject that gold to intense heat once again and repeat the process and do it over and over again, scraping off more and more impurities from the top of the gold. And the final test to see if that was pure gold would be if that goldsmith could look into his block of gold and see his reflection as clear as if he was looking through a mirror. You see, God is turning up the heat. Not for no reason, but to refine us. Because it's only under intense heat that we see sin rise to the top, right? When things are going poorly, when, when we're hurting, we see that sin come out. And it rises to the top in a way where we can scrape it off through repentance and God will bring us through this process throughout our lives over and over and over again until he is able to look at us and see his image perfectly reflected in us. That's why you can rejoice. J.B. Phillips paraphrases these verses this way. When all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Trials are not intruders, but they're actually friends, because at the end of verse 3, it says that trials will lead to steadfastness. In other words, the suffering that God brings into your life will make your faith stronger. It'll make your two feet planted firmly on the ground so that you are immovable, so that you are strong and robust in your faith. It strengthens your faith in a way by giving you a view of God, a view of the gospel, and a view of your faith that you never would have had if you hadn't gone through the afflictions. If everything in your life is going great, and you can accomplish all of your problems by yourself, and you're just doing well in life. You solve all your issues with your own intellect, and your own problem solving, and your own personality, and your own likability, and your own planning. If everything is going well that way, then you don't need to rely on God. But if you try to solve your problems, and you can't, and you try again to solve your problems and fix them, but you just can't. That forces you into the arms of God and rely upon him solely 100% for comfort and peace. 
That is what trials do. Charles Spurgeon, who had his fair share of trials, arthritis, gout, depression, and respiratory issues, said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me upon the rock of ages. Do you want to grow closer to Jesus? And do you want to love Jesus more? Do you want your faith to be stronger today than it was yesterday? Then embrace your trials. Kiss them. Because they are the waves that throw you upon the rock of ages. Psalm 119.67 Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Psalm 119.71 It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. It was good for me. Because I learned about you and your word in a way that I never would have without the suffering. Trials are an act of love given by a God of love. Trials are God's best for you in order to bring out the best in you. Imagine you are an amateur basketball player like me. But you aspire to play in the NBA like me. And one day you're shooting hoops by yourself in a park and Greg Popovich walks by. Now, if you don't know who Greg Popovich is, he is the coach of the San Antonio Spurs, one of the greatest coaches of all time. And uh, he's not only good because of his winning ways, but what he's really famous for is that he takes his players and gets the best out of them. He cultivates their talent and causes them to reach their maximum potential. It has been said of Greg Popovich by an NBA commentator that he could take the cheerleading squad of the San Antonio Spurs and they would make the playoffs. And so imagine that Coach Popovich walks by, sees you shooting hoops and says, I like your shot. I think you've got some potential. And so why don't you come down to San Antonio and train in my facilities and work out with with my players now i gotta warn you it's gonna be tough it's gonna be grueling i'm gonna work you hard Uh, you're gonna go through the most physical agony you ever have in your entire life well how would you respond to that well if you truly wanted to play in the nba you would be ecstatic you would be so excited you would look forward to the hard work, and you would look past the pain because you know that Coach Popovich is going to bring out the best in you. And that's what's going on in trials. Uh, We can be joyful as we face trials, and we can look past the pain because we know that God is making us the best possible Christian we could be. That's the kind of thinking that causes joy to elbow out sorrow as our leading emotion. You see, joy might not be your first emotion when a trial hits, but you can make it your leading emotion if you have this perspective 
on trials, that God is using it to refine you and to bring out his best for you. Well, James continues to fill out this reason for trials in verse 4. Let's read that. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here we come to the destination at the end of this difficult journey. We come to the real treasure, and that is Christian maturity. Growing in our faith, getting stronger in our faith, leads to maturity. James emphasizes this three different ways. First, he uses the word perfect. This is being fully developed in your faith. Secondly, he uses the word complete. So you're not only fully developed, but you're fully developed in all areas. There are no weak points in your life. You are mature through and through. And then just for good measure, to make sure you don't miss this, James says it a third way, this time in a negative way, lacking in nothing. You will have everything you need to pursue God as a mature believer. And while you won't be perfect to this side of heaven, each trial is designed to move you a little bit closer to perfection. And so when you became a Christian, you were just this raw chunk of gold with all these ores and minerals and junk in it. But through this process of of trials, God has been perfecting you and refining you so that you became 10 karat gold and then 12 karat and then 14 karat and then 16 karat until finally you do cross over into those heavenly shores and you are pure gold. How does that work? How do trials make us progressively more mature? Well, for this, we turn to the world of cars. If you have a leak in your tire, but you don't know where the puncture is, there's one method, kind of a primitive method you can use to find out where the hole is. You can uh, put your tire in a large basin of water, make sure it's completely submerged, and then add pressure, push down on the tire and just watch. You're watching for bubbles. You find the location of the bubbles and boom, there you go. That's where your leak is. And that is what God is doing to us in trials. He is pressing down on us. He is adding pressure to us. But that's a good thing because it identifies where the holes are. On top of that, now we know where we need to patch up in our lives. How have you responded these past five months with the coronavirus hitting? Have you found that you've become frustrated more easily? Well, that's showing you that you need to grow in your patience. Have you found yourself more worried and anxious than usual? Well, it shows that your trust in God is, is not so strong and you need to grow in your prayer life. Have you found that you've just been running to entertainment and binge watching way more than you should? Well, that's revealing what you really love. That's revealing your idols. Uh, you might love comfort more than you thought you did. And you need to learn to cultivate a true love for God and a greater love for God in your life? Are you 
isolating yourself more than you should. And you just haven't reached out to friends. You know, you say, I'm just so over the Zoom thing. I'm not down with FaceTime anymore. It's just too much. And you say that, but really, you just want to see people. And you don't want to interact with people and you don't want to fellowship. Well, maybe you don't understand the importance of Christian community as much as you thought you did. Have you found that you're just, you're just more sinful during this time? You're at home more, you're alone more, and you just sin way more. And the, the holiness that you were pursuing maybe was just because of the peer pressure, because everyone else was doing it at Lighthouse. And so you wanted to act like they acted. And so this, this trial is revealing how holy or your lack of holiness uh, that you have. And so uh, these are all good things, because while it may hurt to realize that you are a tire with more punctures than you thought, God is helping you identify where those holes are so that you can patch them up. So we're joyful in trials because it's the process God brings us through to strengthen our faith, which in turn increases our maturity. And then in verse 5, we see that if you're in this process, but you don't count it joy, you don't see God maturing you and strengthening your faith, then pray. And this is what leads us to our third major point for today, the response to trials. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. The response to trials is to pray. Now notice that, that word play on the word lack. Verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom. Trials are meant to make you complete, perfect, lacking in nothing. But if you're going through the trial and you find that you are lacking something, you are lacking wisdom, then ask God for that wisdom. Well, what is wisdom? It's more than intellectual knowledge. You can define it this way. Wisdom is skill for living. Skill for living. And so, yes, it starts with an intellectual understanding of the Bible, but then it leads to a skilled way of living, a skilled way of making decisions. Right decisions. Correct decisions. God-honoring decisions. Decisions that edify other people. And so wisdom is the difference between saying, well, that guy really knows his Bible versus that guy really knows how to use his Bible. The thing is that most of the Bible, when we read it, is extremely clear. You read it, you know what it's saying. 85 to 90% of the Bible, when you read it, you understand what it means. But... You find yourself falling into sin over and over again, breaking the commandments that you know and are so clear to you. And you make the same mistake over and over again, and you think, what is wrong with me? You lack wisdom. That's what's missing. And James is saying, if you lack this wisdom, then ask God for it. 
If you're going through a trial and you don't understand that God is making you more mature and you think that God is actually hurting you instead of helping you and you're not learning the lessons you're supposed to be learning in this trial and you're not acting godly, you're not acting wise in this trial, then ask God. Simply ask him. Pray, God, I know I lack wisdom. Will you please give me more? God, I just don't know what to do in this difficult trial that I'm going through. Will you please tell me what I'm to do? God, I just don't understand what you're doing in this trial. I don't see how you're good. I don't see how you're working all things for good here. I'm tempted to think that that you're not there, that you don't hear And that you're not for me in this trial. God, will you please help me to have a biblical perspective on this trial? Simply ask God for this wisdom. And as you do, it's so important not to forget who exactly it is you're praying to. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Who do we pray to? A generous God, an open-hearted God, a God with open hands who will freely give you wisdom. He will open up the gates of heaven and rain down his wisdom on you if you ask of him. To drive the point home further, James says God gives without reproach. The word reproach means to rebuke or to scold. God will never chide you for coming to him in prayer. Oh, why didn't you come to me sooner? Now look at the mess you're in. Oh, you're asking me again? How many times do I have to help you with this? No, God will never do that. He will always welcome your prayers and he will grant you this good gift of wisdom if you only ask. Growing up in school, we all had good teachers and bad teachers, right? And as I think about all the, the really good and effective teachers that I've had, One common thread I've noticed is that they were all willing to answer all my questions and to answer my questions even though I asked the same thing multiple times. To this day, my favorite teacher of all time was my 11th grade English teacher, and she was this type of person. So uh, I remember reading a few Shakespearean plays in 11th grade. We read Macbeth and Hamlet, and I didn't understand squat. But I liked them for some reason. I didn't understand anything I was reading, but at least when the teacher explained it, I thought they were very interesting stories. And so I would just pepper my teacher with questions. Well, what does Hamlet mean here? Why does Macbeth say this? And just ask these questions over and over again, so much so that it came to the point where she invited me to stay in her classroom to have lunch with her to ask my questions. And uh, I actually took her up on it. So shows you how cool I was in high school, just having lunch with my English teacher. Uh, But I I greatly appreciated her. And looking back, I realized that this teacher gave up her lunch period in order to answer my questions. And this is just a small picture of God. He will lovingly and freely welcome all your requests to him for wisdom And he will freely give it. He is tender. He is compassionate. 
And he will never rebuke us or turn us away when we come to him in prayer. If we take a sneak peek ahead to verses 6 to 8, we see that we're called to ask in faith. And why shouldn't we, right? We come to a loving heavenly father as his children, and we make these requests, and we know, we can trust, we can have absolute faith when we come to him because he's going to say, of course, of course, I will listen to you, my child. Well, today we've seen the Christian perspective on trials. And now that we have this perspective, what do we do? I want to give you four questions that will hopefully point you the right direction in applying this passage. First, how are you thinking in your trial? How are you thinking in your trial? When a trial comes, stop and think. Think biblically about this trial. Before you react, think. James says to count it, reckon it, make a willful decision to count your trial as joy because you know God is using that trial to perfect you, to mature you in the faith. Do you know this? Not just in your head, not just because you read it, but deep down in your heart, do you understand that this trial is a gift from God? Because only then, only if you have this deep conviction, will it be an anchor in the storm. Second question, how are you learning in your trial? How are you learning in your trial? Are you just hoping that this trial that you're in is just going to pass? Are you just hoping that it's going to get out of your life as soon as possible? Or are you sitting there and learning? C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God is using your trial as a megaphone in your ear to get through to you. Are you learning lessons that he is shouting to you in your trial? Are you learning about yourself, about your own heart, your passions, your weaknesses, your idols, your punctures, and how to patch them up? How are you praying in your trial? This is the third question you can ask yourself. How are you praying in your trial? In this passage, we have one of the most difficult commands to obey, right? I mean, let's just be real. When trials come, be happy. That's not easy to do. We need help. We need strength. We need grace from God. And so I hope that, if nothing else, this passage will drive you to your knees in prayer, asking God for wisdom, for perspective, and for joy. Which leads us to our final question. How are you rejoicing in your trial? How are you thinking in your trial? How are you learning in your trial? How are you praying in your trial? And now how are you rejoicing in your trial? Count it all joy. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Therefore, 
we can truly and genuinely rejoice. And this is certainly my hope and my prayer for all of you, uh, that as you go through life's storms, your boat won't capsize. But as you navigate these rough waters, though wounded and battered, as you approach heaven's shore, you will be full of faith and full of joy. Now let's pray that God would help us to live lives like this. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for all of the gifts that you give to us as your children. And uh, many gifts we recognize, obvious gifts uh, that make us happy naturally. Uh, but Lord, we also thank you for these trials, uh, the big ones and the small ones, uh, because we know that they lead to something good. Uh, we know that you have our best on your mind. And I pray that you would help us to see that, uh, not just here as we listen to this sermon, but when we're actually under the heat and under the pressure. Give us this mindset. Uh, I pray that your, your spirit would impress these truths so deep on our hearts that we naturally have a reaction to trials of joy, knowing that you're working in us. And God, I'm just so excited uh, to see how you're going to, to use difficulty in the life of this church and in the ministries here uh, to perfect them, to mature them, to make them more firm in their faith uh, so that they can be a strong and powerful gospel witness in this area. And I pray that you would do just that. In Christ's name, amen.